From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. As a clinical fellow in 2008, Dr. David Sykes met a patient presenting a strange constellation of symptoms that had gone undiagnosed. After years in clinical research, drug therapy, and biotech, Dr. Sykes has discovered a disease called Tempe syndrome and worked with patients around the world to improve treatment and quality of life. David Sykes is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a hematologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Sykes, thank you for joining us and welcome to Think Research. Thank you. Your lab, uh, you run a lab and your lab is focused on developing new treatments for patients with blood disorders. um, And that encompasses a wide array of um, diseases. Can you describe some of the research your lab is doing? Absolutely. I think most of my postdoctoral work was focused on the disease acute myeloid leukemia. And that's a disease where the development of your blood cells goes awry. And those cells that are normally supposed to mature don't mature into their normal neutrophils or macrophages. Um, And your blood's really a remarkable organ, which means that you're making hundreds of millions of new cells every day. And so understanding how that developmental process works, and then understanding how that goes wrong in the setting of leukemia um, is really a focus. Um, and then beyond that, we've also looked at the normal development of particular cells called neutrophils with the idea of trying to understand better how neutrophils are made, um, really with the ultimate goal of developing neutrophil transfusions sometime off in the future. Okay, so um, neutrophil transfusion, what is that? Boy, that's something that has been on the kind of the, the want list for, for decades now. But, you know, we're very capable of transfusing red blood cells for people who have anemia or low red blood cell counts. And, of course, we're capable of transfusing platelets if you have too few platelets and you're bleeding. But transfusing white blood cells has just been a much more difficult challenge. And so decades of clinical trials have really struggled to show a real clear benefit for those. And so we're trying to take a step back and instead of transfusing the mature neutrophils, actually develop a system of transfusing neutrophil progenitors into people that don't have enough neutrophils and are usually suffering from bad infections. Okay. And so white blood cells are the cells that fight infection. And so being able to infuse those into people who lack them, what would the benefit be? Well, it's a good question. I think we think a lot about um, patients that might be immunocompromised or immunosuppressed. And usually those are patients that maybe don't have enough T cells. The classic is um, AIDS, right? So HIV Mm -hmm. infection, you don't have enough T cells and you're very sensitive to particular infections. But we sometimes forget about patients with neutropenia. So Mm -hmm. if you don't have enough neutrophils, you're neutropenic. And it turns out those patients are actually among the most heavily immune suppressed. And if you don't have enough neutrophils for a week or for two weeks, um, you're at a very high risk of lethal bacterial or fungal infections. And so the ability to support people 
during a period of neutropenia or neutrophil dysfunction would really be, you know, sort of a holy grail of transfusion medicine, but actually getting neutrophils um, from one donor and into another donor is just a very non-trivial type of approach. They, they have a very short half-life and the numbers that are required make it just technically very challenging. You also discovered a disease called Tempe syndrome. And I want to get into the story about that because when we spoke previously, um, I thought it was a really interesting story and kind of a, a microcosm or an illustration of the kind of translational or a pathway in translational medicine, but kind of unusual too. So um, first, could you just tell us what is Tempe syndrome? You know, Tempe syndrome has been sort of a labor of love for the last decade or so. And uh, Tempe syndrome at its heart now affects, we think, 26 people worldwide. So it's a <laughs> ultra rare disease. And it's an acronym, which we named after the salient features. The T stands for telangiectasias, which are these unusual vascular malformations on the skin. The E stands for erythrocytosis and elevated erythropoietin, where patients make too much of the hormone erythropoietin, which drives red blood cell production. The M stands for monoclonal gammopathy, which is the very common um, expansion of a monoclonal antibody in the patient plasma. The P for perinephric fluid, where patients, not all of them, but most of them get fluid, unusual fluid surrounding their kidneys. And then the eye is really the most debilitating. That's intrapulmonary shunting where patients, um, the blood actually bypasses their lungs and doesn't get oxygenated. So their oxygen levels fall. And uh, yeah, and this was a story that was just uh, really the born out of curiosity. And we met a gentleman back in 2008 at the Massachusetts General Hospital with an undiagnosed medical condition. And I think just kind of stubbornly thought that we could try to diagnose where other people had not been able to diagnose this medical condition. And, uh, and uh, here at the Massachusetts General Hospital, they have a really nice collaboration with the New England Journal of Medicine where very unusual cases or patients with undiagnosed cases can actually have their case written up and presented to sort of an expert audience. And, uh, and we were able to do that and it's called the case records of the MGH. And I think what was really fun about that was at the end of the case report, and it still concluded with this is a patient with an undiagnosed medical condition, but quite an interesting one. At the end of the case report, we convinced the editors to sneak in a little sentence that just said, if anyone else around the world has seen the case such similar as this, please contact me. And of course, the readership of the New England Journal of Medicine is such that uh, within a week of that publication, we got two emails, one from a researcher in Belgium and one from a physician in Los Angeles that they had patients that were almost identical to the patient we saw. So it's really sort of spurring some, you know, excitement around the fact that, hey, this was rare, ultra rare, obviously, but that this was something that was probably not just a one-off, but actually a more of a syndrome. Right. Um, so tell us a little bit more about that first patient that you saw. You said that they had been, um, struggling to find a diagnosis for some time. And how did they come to you? Well, it's always such a small world. You know, this was a patient who lived in Memphis, but had already been seeking opinions at the Mayo Clinic and seeking opinions in New York City and had a, in this case, a cousin who knew my mentor at the time, 
Dr. Ayal Attar. I was a fellow at the time. And Dr. Attar, who's since gone off to industry, was working at the MGH and he was mentoring me as a fellow. And so um, we just saw him as a new patient in clinic one day and went through, I can still remember sort of a the stack of hundreds of pages of medical records of all the stuff he had done. Um, and then we ended up admitting him to the hospital and trying to spend a couple of days, um, you know, basically inviting a whole team of nephrologists and a whole team of internal medicine doctors and putting our heads together to try to think that through. Mm. And you talked about the, um, the case report in the New England Journal of Medicine and convincing the editor to tack that little note on the end. What was, was that an unusual kind of thing to add into a case report? You know, it, it was. I think the case reports usually focus on kind of cool diagnoses and the ability to come to a diagnosis. And oftentimes they're presented to someone who doesn't know the case, but who need, needs to uh, on the spot come up with a diagnosis. Those are called the unknown cases. And then the other majority are focused on management. Like, how do you manage a complicated case? Um, but quite rarely do they publish cases without an answer. It's, you know, it's very unsatisfying for the reader to <laughs> come to the end and not have an answer. Um, but uh, one of the, the pathologists at the Mass General, Nancy Lee Harris, who's quite a famous um, pathologist and who was running the case records at the time, um, thought that this was interesting enough and it sort of you know, stumped enough people at multiple different institutions that she thought it would be interesting to put this in. Uh, and then yeah, sort of at the last minute, I, I wanted to be sure we use the, the power of social media, or in this case, the power of the readership of the New England Journal of Medicine um, to, uh, you know, at least to put in that sort of, uh, you know, kind of crowdsourcing approach to, uh, to diagnosis. Mm. Um, so you ended up getting a couple of emails. Um, one, and one was about a patient in Belgium can you tell us about that patient? Yeah, so uh, my colleague and now very good friend, uh, Wilfred Schroen uh, in Antwerp, Belgium, um, he had written this very sort of impassioned email and just talking about how he also had a patient that he'd been caring for for more than a decade with exactly the same constellation of symptoms. You know, they're just too weird, these, these five Tempe syndromes. They're just too weird. Not, it could have, you know, could not have been a coincidence. Um, and unfortunately, his patient at the time um, was doing quite poorly from the breathing standpoint. The intrapulmonary shunting, the eye of Tempe, um, had led to the point where she would require 24-hour oxygen. And so I think there was both this kind of excitement around the fact that this wasn't an isolated case, and then a little bit of pressure to think of, you know, how could we think of, you know, approaching this from a treatment standpoint to try to, you know, bring some relief to this patient. Um, and so along with Casey O'Connell, who was the doctor um, out in Los Angeles, we combed the medical literature and found three additional cases that had been published. Again, it's kind of these undiagnosed cases in the medical literature, and then, um, and then put together a very small case series of the six patients, the three living patients and the three described uh, patients in the literature, and decided that you know, this, this, had to be, this had to be a new syndrome. So that was the first formal description of the Tempe syndrome. Um, again, that was just published as a letter to the editor in a very small article just uh, suggesting that something was really common to all these patients. And, uh, and really what we focused on at that point was the fact that they all had the M, the monoclonal gammopathy. And statistically speaking, that was just astronomically small, that six patients 
should all have a monoclonal gammopathy. And so that's what led us to focus on that. Hmm. And um, you talked about, so you mentioned the, after the, the patient in Belgium who required 24 hour oxygen, um, that you started thinking about treatment. Was it finding the monoclonal gammopathy? Was that the thing that you started focusing the treatment plan on? That's right. You know, so the teaching, the medical teaching is that these monoclonal gammopathies are very common, which is true. You know, even more than 5% of people over the age of 65 have it. So there's millions of people with monoclonal gammopathies and they're never felt to cause anything, right? That, that abnormal antibody is felt to be sort of an innocent bystander. And that's been the medical teaching. But also what we realized is we had six patients within their 40s, 50s, um, both alive and in the, the literature, um, probably there would only be a 1% chance that they should randomly have a monoclonal gammopathy. So the fact that you had six patients, you know, 1% times 1% times 1% just made it astronomically unlikely that that wasn't somehow involved in the case. Um, and so what we did was we took a page from the cancer literature, multiple myeloma is also a disease where those patients make abnormal antibody cell, anti, uh, this is abnormal plasma cell production. And so we had to convince both ourselves and the patient and the insurance companies that we wanted to treat these patients with myeloma therapy, even though they didn't have multiple myeloma to try to kill off their plasma cells and to try to eradicate this monoclonal gammopathy. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little more about the kind of early treatment attempts. Um, and you mentioned your patient in Memphis who's still alive, I take it, and is doing, is doing well. Um, how, how are those early attempts? And you know, maybe talk about convincing somebody to take a drug that you know, isn't approved for this, for a disease that didn't exist until they met you really. You know, and that's such a, you know, such an important question, which is, you know, here you've got now three patients in three different, well, two different countries and three different locations. Um, and now you've told them that they're not alone in the world, which I think they were immediately happy to hear about. You know, that was just sort of a fundamentally, I think, reassuring. Um, and then honestly, I think this was uh, sort of just a good example of involving the patient in the treatment process, which is, you know, we don't know what you have, but we want to help you. And what can we do that doesn't seem too crazy that really has a potential to work? And I think one, we were blessed with, you know, uh, very nice, uh, just wonderfully sort of thoughtful patients who sort of understood the, the dilemma there, both a diagnostic and a therapeutic dilemma where you don't want to make anybody worse but at the same time, you don't want people to go untreated. And then we were very fortunate. That first patient in Belgium, we decided to move forward with a medication called bortezomib, which is a classic medication for multiple myeloma. And what was just amazing was that she had a dramatic response to even the first couple of doses of bortezomib, which was really, I think, if, you know, in a sense, if, if she hadn't had that response, this, you know, this whole story would be very different, but she had a dramatic response and within months had actually, I mean, what seems crazy, it had come off 24 hour oxygen and was back to riding her bicycle. Like it was just transformative at that point. Um, and then that really gave us the impetus to be like, wow, this, you know, we seem to be onto something uh, and treated the other two patients. Um, and I, of course that was a special case because the patient that I had met 
he didn't respond very well to Bordesimib. You know, so if he'd been the first person, I think mm. we'd had a different. So he then subsequently responded to a, another plasma cell-directed therapy uh, quite recently, a daratumumab, another myeloma drug, just approved, like actually approved even after the time where we described the syndrome. Like this now, that's just a lucky chance of mm. the FDA approving a new drug for a different disease. Um, and then he, same thing, he had tanks of oxygen in his work that he just sent back to the company. You know, he just, and he's been off and in a clinical remission now for the last two years. Hmm. And yeah, that's, that's so interesting that if you had trying to treat your one patient, if you tried to treat the patient who, you know, if you tried to treat him first, maybe things might have gone differently. Do you think about that? Like, would you have said, oh, this isn't the right, the right path or, because that was your only option at that point. This is it. I mean, so this story has so much sort of serendipity and just sort of good luck in a sense. Um, and that's right, because when you're doing something that's not just a little outside the box, but way outside the box, um, you do want to be very thoughtful about it and very careful that you don't hurt anybody. Um, and then I think this, you know, this always falls into what I like to call it. Not, this is not my word, but people call it a therapeutic challenge, which means let's try to make your diagnosis by seeing if you respond to a certain therapy. Mm. So this was clearly, huh, does that, is that MGUS really involved? Question mark. And if we take it away, if we eradicate it using this bortezomib or daratumumab, does the sim do the symptoms get better? And in this case, we were just super lucky. They totally got better, confirmed that this was a reversible disorder, that the damage was not permanent, confirmed that this was not a congenital problem. This was something that had developed and could be, and could be um, then reversed or eradicated. And so that sort of therapeutic challenge to make the diagnosis uh, became quite a, you know, very satisfying, but also, um, you know, in full disclosure, of course, very lucky for sure. Mm -hmm. So since then, uh, you continue to treat patients. You say, I mean, there's only 26 patients that we know of worldwide. Um, so tell me a little bit about, or tell us a little bit about the Tempe syndrome community and how you're involved and what the ongoing work is like. Oh, it's so true. It's sort of almost funny to call it a community. <laughs> it is such a tiny community, but, uh, no, I think, in, and this is, a, you know, in the last sort of 20 years with, you know, let's face it, with the advent of Google and the advent of really a lot of online resources, this has been a perfect time to find an ultra rare disease. Um, and so we, of course, put up a Wikipedia page. That's the first thing one should always do. Um, but, uh, but all kidding aside, it's interesting because once you get a bit of a web presence, both on the rare disease networks and Wikipedia, now, if patients just type in this, um, sorry, if doctors or patients, but just type in the symptoms of the Tempe syndrome, actually Tempe syndrome comes up as a search, you know, so we actually come up high on the list. And so about two times a year, three times a year, we'll get phone calls from someone who's typed in literally telangiectasias, erythropoietin or something. And then all of a sudden that comes right up and it really has, um, has been a good sort of advertising. And then we've also tried to be very prolific about publishing just even tiny little publications that then go on to PubMed as little, um, basically a little advertising. Because every time we do that, another patient or two comes out of the woodwork. 
And so just this last year in 2020, we had a small review article and actually it was uh, the Tempe syndrome is now recognized by the World Health Organization and it's in the coding system. So now it actually becomes actually, you know, billable and you can code for it. So it sort of has become kind of uh, ultra rare, but now it's actually real just because now it's in all the databases. And we hope that of course we'll find, well, we don't want anybody to have the Tempe syndrome, but you at least like to hope to find everybody so that one can make a concerted research effort to try to really figure out what's going on. I wanted to ask you, you talked about how it's not congenital. So it's something that develops and is reversible. Do you know, or do you have any thoughts about why or how it develops? You know, it's such a good question. We think it's bad luck. You know, so if you have literally 5% of your population over the age of 65 that has one of these MGUSs, um, and if it's a one in, you know, a 100 million chance that the MGUS could actually do something bad and cause the Tempe syndrome, it might just be bad luck. Hmm. Um, at the same time, the patients are a little younger than you'd expect. And so one of the hypotheses has been that it's a response to an, sort of an unknown infection that then leads to what looks like almost an autoimmune disease, right? This antibody is tickling something inside the patient's own body to cause these other symptoms. But how does an antibody cause high erythropoietin? We don't know. How does an antibody cause telangiectasias, cause perinephric fluid? We really don't know. So that's been the focus of the laboratory research, which is to what is the link between an antibody that you didn't have when you were born that you developed somewhere in your third or fourth or fifth decade. And that's now sort of wreaking havoc, but if you get rid of the antibody, you can just reverse all those things. Um, but that link is totally not understood and, uh, and certainly one of the focuses of, of my lab. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the intrapulmonary shunting. That just seems so strange to me that, you know, the whole pulmonary, cardiopulmonary system is to get blood through the lungs and oxygenate and get the carbon dioxide out and then exhale, you know, respirate. So like, how does that, how does the, how does the blood miss the lungs? That's what I want to know. No, it is a fascinating thing. So any one of us typically has 1% of the blood that bypasses the lungs. And that's actually blood that's supposed to feed the lung. And so it doesn't go through the gas exchange process, but you are supposed to oxygenate literally 99% of your blood every time it pumps around the body. And so we think, but all hypothesis now, we think that the abnormal blood vessel production that leads to the telangiectasias in the skin also leads to basically, we think telangiectasias in the lung, where those are now abnormal blood vessels. And uh, the patient that, you know, well, the patients that have had the worst intrapulmonary shunting have been up in the 25% range. Whoa. So 25% of the blood just goes right by and doesn't get oxygenated. And that's an astronomically high number, which people just don't see. Like when we did the scans, we didn't even believe them because they were so high. Um, and typically only seen in kids with congenital heart disease. Um, but this is a microscopic intrapulmonary shunting. Uh, and what's ridiculous was to watch the, those numbers get better on treatment to go from 25% to 18% to 12%. And then to normalize, um, but yeah, very striking how how um, yeah you definitely need your blood, all of your blood, to be oxygenated as it goes by the lungs every time. Yeah, <laughs> at least ninety nine percent of it. At least ninety nine percent. Yeah. So what was it like that you know 
your patient in Belgium who you started to see this kind of sounded like pretty rapid improvement and now you know then she's able to get off oxygen she's able to ride a bike what is that like to see when you're kind of you know in the dark for so long and then somebody turns on the light I think obviously we were I mean there's no question we were ridiculously excited just because as a doctor right you one you definitely just want to make people better right so even if you don't quite know why they're getting better it's so satisfying and then two, I think we were so worried that we were going to do something bad, that we were extremely relieved that we had not only not hurt her at all, but actually really led to such a dramatic improvement. Um, and then she's just really a remarkable lady who's been such a kind of a good advocate for kind of <laughs> trusting your physician and being part of the decision-making process. Uh, and she's involved in uh, music therapy for, for children who are developmentally delayed. So really such a, a very sweet sort of thoughtful and artistic woman who, um, Who's really, yeah, sort of, I think she understands the, the, the dilemma we were in, understood the uncertainty, but also embraced it as a chance to, you know, you've got a couple handful of people now around the world and we're kind of all in this together and let's try to learn something. You know, I think we've asked a lot of our patients, um, research samples, you know, thinking, you know, and, and making sure that they are part of that process. Um, and really the patients have just been sort of wonderful in terms of participating in that, in that uncertainty. And the older I get in my sort of medical experience, the easier I find it, the ability to say, I don't know. And I think that's really important for a patient to realize that maybe you don't know, but you're going to try to work with them to figure it out. Hmm. Um, great. Is there anything else you've learned from this process, uh, from, you know, your work on Tempe syndrome and anything about sort of translational medicine or how you approach um, the lab work you do or the, the, uh, other work that you're involved in? Yeah. I mean, to wax a little, um, sort of poetic on, on this. I mean, I think this is an important example of just having curiosity driven research. And I'm not sure one can always do that because, you know, time is busy and, and, and certainly not every patient develops a new syndrome that's not been described before. And at the same time, I think we're surrounded every day with, with the realization that, you know, patients and their diseases can teach us something. We certainly don't know everything there is to know. There's a lot of biology still to be learned. Um, and then that's coupled with the practical issues, which is, you know, there's no Tempe granting agency, right? There's all of this research has been done by sort of just gifts from the department uh, and the Massachusetts General Hospital has been very supportive. Uh, Wilfrid's uh, Hospital has been very supportive. Um, but how do you study a disease that only affects 26 people or try to convince someone that's important? Though you could also then imagine if you could understand how an antibody could cause all these symptoms, that's a whole area of biology that we don't know about. And maybe then that applies to other areas of biology. Or maybe that applies to some things we didn't expect. Um, so I try to keep with my fellows and medical students and, and trainees, you know, try to keep that curiosity and excitement always open. Not that everybody needs to figure out a new syndrome, but just to keep an open mind and to, to realize that not everybody quite fits into the predefined boxes that uh, we you know, need to put them in on a day-to-day -day basis just to kind of get through the day for sure. Yeah, that's interesting about the sort of the basic science aspect of if you could, if you figure out 
you know, this antibody thing, who knows what else it could lead to. And I think that's really the key, which is, yes, some people would say, why would you bother researching a disease that's so rare? But that's not the point, right? The point is you have uncovered, because of its rarity, a whole new area of biology that was previously not even considered. Now, again, these are hypotheses, but the fact that now you have patients and their response really gets, puts you in the position of a testable hypothesis. And I think that's what I'm sort of most excited about. Like, I, that's the whole goal of a scientist, right? As a nerdy scientist, I don't want to just do stuff other people have done. I want to learn new biology. And then wouldn't it be cool if it wasn't just new biology, but it was actually new biology that could actually help somebody. That would be even more cool. Well, Dr. Sykes, thank you so much. Um, we really enjoyed having this conversation with you. Thank you very much, Brenda. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.